I'm not sure if I think that, you know, self-reported stress level or anxiety or depression would have decreased. If anything, I think that they might have gone up in the student population. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob Miranda. And I'm Cassie Witt. Now, Cassie and I are doctoral students here at the University of Alabama, specifically in the Experimental Psychology program, where we're concentrating in social psychology. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, this is the podcast for you. Hello, 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 beautiful people. My name is Jacob Miranda. And I'm Cassie Witt. And we are apparently re-echoing our intro. <laughs> Cassie, how are you doing this fine day? I'm doing well. I feel like we we like faked them out for a second there. Like, were they going to play the intro twice? I was recently listening to a podcast where, and it's like a more well-established podcast, mm-hmm. but like midway through, there was just a volume, max volume music playing in the background. It's like, so like that definitely was an editing error where it's just like, they were trying to have a conversation, but there was like too much jazz oh. blasting on. And I was like, yeah. Ooh. I think I tried that kind of early. Well, I'm still very early on in my editing career, but one of the first episodes that I edited, I like tried to add like some transition music, like halfway through an episode to like cut across segments and it didn't work very well. But so. you caught it though. So that's. Yeah. Well, you caught it. Well, I don't want to take responsibility for all our greatness, but, you know. (laughs) You know, it's been two weeks, or it's getting close to two weeks. Mm -hmm. Definitely been some ups, definitely been some downs. I think you and I kind of have this history of, like, peaches and pits. Yeah. I want to rebrand. I want to do roses and thorns. (laughs) When I worked in Res Life, there was, like, so many variety of names for the exact same activity. For some reason, roses and thorns come to mind, but I'm sure if I sat down and reflect, I can think of all the other alternative names that went by. So roses and thorns. Roses and thorns. Or should I? You know, ladies first. All right. My rose for this week is probably that my family is coming to visit me. Um, So I know a few episodes ago, I mentioned how I won the university level award for outstanding teaching by a doctoral student. So that ceremony as of the time that we are recording this is in a couple of days. My parents are coming to visit. My long distance partner is is driving here for that too. Um, So I'm going to have like lots of loved ones around this week, which I'm very, very excited about. Um, My thorn is about something that happened last week. Um, So last week I was in, and I'm not going to name names or anything, but I was in a faculty meeting and recently in our experimental program here at UA, we've been in discussion, or really the faculty have been in discussion about reducing the number of graded credit hours that students have to earn for their degree requirements. Requirements. And so essentially we have the option um, based on, you know, all of the rules from the larger UA graduate school and everything to cut one class out of the curriculum. They were talking about kind of how to restructure the program, which class they should cut. And somebody suggested cutting our teaching class and it made me so upset. Um, and to be clear, Cassie, was that at least amongst the faculty, was that even like an option or was that even being floated by anybody? At least to my understanding, that came out of like almost nowhere from a faculty and everyone was like, wait, what? 
Yeah. So they were talking about cutting one of the classes that's in like the general core for the experimental students. So the way our program is set up, right, we have to take like a a bio basis class. And then depending on whether you are like a social student or developmental psych or cognitive psych, like you have to take like one of those classes. So basically it's just like all this kind of like breadth area, this general core where you take classes across like the different concentrations that we have. Um, And so they were talking about restructuring that and like kind of cutting one class and giving students more autonomy and choosing like which core classes they wanted to take. And then, yeah, out of the blue, someone was like, why don't we just cut the teaching class? Basically, I think like their reasoning was like we at UA are an R1 school. And so if we're going to restructure the curriculum, it should be to give students more time to do research or like have classes that are research based. I mentioned like in the meeting, like how valuable it had been to me recently as someone who like just got off the job market, having that teaching experience, having this teaching of psychology class was just so, so valuable. And then I learned while I was in the meeting because a couple of other faculty members responded to the suggestion and here in our program at UA, we don't have to take comprehensive exams. And the reasons, the reason that we don't have to take comps is because we teach psych 101 and we have this teaching of psychology class. So that substitutes a comprehensive exam, which I think is really, really cool. And I don't know if it's like possible for other programs out there to do that, but like not having the stress of taking comps has been great, but then also getting this teaching experience, especially as someone who was hoping for an academic job very, very valuable. Like many, I think, R1 institutions, graduate students here teach a lot of the undergraduate courses. And so I think it's how UA at least justifies like having so many graduate student instructors is by like giving them this professional development opportunity. And like we, you know, have them take this class and we train them to do this job, which I guess in a way is like a silver lining to the thorn. Yeah, definitely. Because like any type of job that you get, if you're staying in academia, is probably going to constitute both research aspects and teaching aspects. Now the ratio might be different and the emphasis might be different on either end, but like you're still probably going to have to do both. And to get rid of what I would argue is probably one of the better aspects of our program, if not the best aspect, is the teaching of psych class at the graduate level. I mean, you know my reaction. That just seemed ridiculous. And I was in disbelief that someone had even suggested that. And that just seemed so strange to me. And especially like to me, it makes sense for a perfect justification because normally my understanding of comps was that it was kind of like a very stressful, made people cry, frequently failed thing that most people generally forgot in a couple of years of what they even studied for versus teaching your own class for a whole semester or a quarter if you're on a quarter system. You're demonstrating that you have a mastery of your court if you the field of psychology and you're able to teach a wide array of it, especially if it's 101 or other specific fields, right? And like for me, like that's accomplishing the same thing while also building pragmatic skills that you're going to actually have to teach as well, while also demonstrating your wide knowledge in the area. I also think that teaching Psych 101 is more helpful in like this kind of broad mastery of the field of psychology than like studying for a comprehensive exam would be. Because I don't think that I really understood things until I started teaching them. Like I had, I think, just a very surface level understanding of so many things in psychology. But once I was faced with 
the fact that I have to stand in front of a room full of undergraduate students and teach them about these things. And I like really broke down a lot of these theories into their component parts, or especially statistics. Like I feel so much more confident in my own statistical knowledge because I have had to teach it several times now. Right. And it just also seems odd because whether you call it comps or quals, I know it goes by different names, depending on the institution. Like I haven't met a single person who's like, that was a worthwhile experience and a good use of my time. It almost just seems more like hazing of like, well, everyone else had to do this before me. They now expect me to jump through this hurdle. So I'm just going to jump through this hurdle. Like we know that the idea of like being an academic and being a critical thinker isn't about memorizing names and years, yet comps and quals is like, cite Baumeister 1998's famous seminal work. And if that just so happened to be a paper you didn't read, does that mean that I haven't mastered the field because I don't know that name and year? Like it seems so antithetical to what we would assume is actually a mark of scholarship. Yeah, the way I think about getting a PhD, at least getting a PhD in experimental psychology is like this training is about teaching you to be a critical thinker and really shaping like how you view the world and how you view behavior and phenomenon. It's not about, like you said, memorizing a bunch of study results or, you know, facts and dates and names and things like that. Rather, it's putting tools in a toolbox and shaping how you view the world. The most recent thing I was thinking of as you were talking was kind of like just with the replication crisis and open science. Like to me, as I continue to think about this, it seems even more ridiculous to have this sort of exam of tell me all these effects that, you know, what we know in psychology to be true. Like, how can you give that type of exam? And it's like, oh, actually, we don't know um, if that's true or not, but you should still know the name of the year and still say what they found, Mm -hmm. even though there might be more recent replications that failed to find it. Like, to me, it seems more harder to justify the traditional quals comps method. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though, like I said, I know it's traditional and people are like, why would you change it? It's what we've all had to go through. It just doesn't seem to make sense to me. So recap, your rose was loved ones visiting. Yes. To visit you, to celebrate in your achievement for being the number one graduate student teacher out of the whole University of Alabama. Mm-hmm. And then your pitch was some people are like, screw the teaching course. <laughs> I mean, one of our most popular episodes that we've recorded so far has been about our incentive system and how often like teaching isn't prioritized in the same way that research is, especially at R1 institutions. And to kind of like witness that in real time. <laughs> and, and not, and not, not to make not to make like super deep assumptions or anything. Like maybe it was just like there was nothing malicious intended and the person like actually does value teaching, but it was still just kind of disheartening as someone who's so passionate about teaching, especially as a graduate student to like see that suggestion. Of like, that's the conceptualization of an R1. Yeah. It's, we need to cut our focus on teaching even further. So yeah. well, maybe so I'm going to steal that as my thorn. I'm just okay. Gonna, yeah. yeah was that brought me down to what's like, oh. what are your roses and thorns? I think the most prominent rose in my backyard that I've been watering for quite a while now uh, has been just my dissertation or specifically I'm in the proposal stage of it. Luckily I've gone thanks to our advisor, lots of good feedback. I have to send it to my committee by 420 formally proposing. I always get these names mixed up um, on May 4th. So may the 4th be with you all. So a lot of handy mnemonics for this, Um, but I feel like it's basically mostly complete. I have to write maybe a page or two more, but like it's been through several revisions. It's been polished. 
And it's at a state where it's like, oh, I actually feel comfortable in this proposal. Um, so tackling on like this second step out of the big three steps for a dissertation to me is just like a huge milestone. It's like, all right, one step left, right? Which is the formal defense once I collect my data. The proposal is always the hardest part because you have to justify, is your question a good question? Are your methods solid? Or it's just a justification. Like, can you defend your proposal well before running out? Yeah, and I know you and I have talked about this, but I too, I felt like my proposal defense, like I was more stressed about that and worried than I am about my upcoming like final defense. defense. Because it's like the proposal defense really is like you have to defend your idea. Once you're like at the final defense stage, it's like, well, your committee gave you feedback, gave you the green light on your idea. So it's like now you're just like you collect a data and you get to present the results, which is really fun and cool. Yeah, they critique the methodology. I'm like, I got the receipts. You agreed during the proposal phase that you'd be okay with this. So I would say of the three steps, this proposal defense is probably the highest or harshest one. And the fact that I'm feeling good about it makes me happy. So I feel like that's definitely a rose. I would say kind of like this weird thorn, this beautiful, beautiful thorn happened recently where the University of Alabama has something that I hadn't experienced in my past two institutions called Honors Week. Um, and throughout Honors Week, part of Honors Week was also going through your initial um, award ceremony, at least at the departmental level. So part of that is we host a lot of ceremonies for both undergrads and graduate students, celebrate their things. And within our psychology department, this past Friday, I received an email saying like, hey, we're going to have this departmental award ceremony you're being honored. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Cause I know they asked from at least our end to like nominate faculty to be awarded as like best teacher, best researcher, whatnot, or most outstanding faculty member. So I was thinking, oh, maybe they're doing that at the faculty and like, hey, nominate some graduate students so you can honor them. So I was really excited. I was really happy. You know, it was through a Zoom session. I popped in, it's an hour long thing. Um, and I did get honored, but I didn't get honored for any type of like nominated thing by faculty. I didn't even get honored for my recent three minute thesis win where like I placed and was able to win some money because I was like, okay, maybe it's something recent since I just did that in the fall. I got honored for my fellowship, which I got two years ago, which I've already previously been honored for. So like when they called my name and they chose the ugliest ass photo it in black photo. and white, it was a bad photo here. I was just like, oh, okay. And I smiled and people did the little Zoom reaction claps. And I'm like, this is just awkward. Like, oh, why, why are we honoring me right now? It feels like other people have done so much more. And it's like, so that was weird. That was weird. That was a weird thorn. Okay, Jacob, now that we've talked about our roses and our thorns, I thought we could get into our main topic for today's episode. And what I pitched to you and you were interested in doing was having a discussion about the mental health crisis that we see in higher education students. And I thought I'd start by talking about some recent numbers. So there was a paper published in 2020, looking at just mental health issues in undergraduate students. And so in this particular research, they found that 88% of the students that they surveyed reported moderate to severe stress. 44% of them reported moderate to severe anxiety and 36% reported moderate to severe depression. Um, and I think it's important to say that this data was collected at the University of Kentucky. But in this particular sample, they found that risk factors for mental illness included being female, 
being in a rural area, being low income, and being a student who was already academically underperforming. Um, but I think that these numbers are just these percentages. And again, it's just one sample of students at one school, but I do think that they are probably pretty reflective of how things look at a lot of higher education institutions, especially that first statistic that 88% of the students who participated reported moderate to severe stress. That is wild to me. I don't know. What are your like initial reactions to this, Jacob? Initial reactions, should be told, it is disheartening. I think it's reflected in the three institutions I've been, including this one, where I know that for every institution at UCR, the University of California, Riverside, Angelo State University, and obviously here at UA, all the counseling slash clinical centers are typically full. Um, I know when I was trained and like had to refer people to like these mental health resources. And while I was an undergrad, some of the waiting people who were like on extremely like severe suicidal ideation, sometimes had to wait a couple weeks in order to get an appointment and like you would follow up with them and you'd say, how's it going? And you would imagine like maybe they would take priority or not, but the prevalence was so high and it could either be that the counseling center was so, so understaffed or there just is such a high prevalence of these mental health issues. It's not like students aren't willing to seek the help. I think they are. What worries me is that, that if this prevalence is as high, the 88% moderate severe stress, the almost 50% severe anxiety, the almost 40% severe depression, that's a lot of people who even if they want help, they can't get it. A second kind of tangential thought, but very related is because counseling centers seem to be so overwhelmed, I think, and sometimes I found myself this critique, even though I'm trying to give more grace, I can try to paint a more sympathetic picture where you have these counselors who are overworked, completely overworked, and they're seeing so many people that to be invested or to take time or to go things slowly or even just to set more frequent appointments is near impossible. And when I was an undergrad and I had to deal with suicide ideation, when I was in my master's program and I had to try to deal with suicide ideation, my master's program was a little better, but for the most part, I went through so many counselors because so many of them were left, they left me wanting. Like it was such at a superficial level and I think I was more willing to like blame them while I was experiencing that. Now, kind of a couple steps into the future, looking back, I can be a bit more sympathetic that they probably were overworked. But I know many students I've talked to currently um, and in past semesters when I've taught have kind of raised the concern. It's like, I didn't see the counseling centers, but the quality of like mental health treatment, right? The counseling seems almost lackluster. And so that kind of scares me because like, even as faculty, we're trained like, hey, if your students are going through a tough issue, refer them to this counseling center. If they're going through a tough issue, refer them to the counseling center. And then the question raises like, well, what if counseling center isn't actually equipped to help students, even though it might be covered under like student insurance or not? Like that scares me. So if you're asking for initial reactions, it's a little bit of fear knowing that these rates are so high and knowing at least the help that anecdotally all the universities I've been to struggle with to provide a high quality of, there's some fear. Yeah, that was something I hadn't really thought of until you mentioned it. Often counseling centers at university, at least I know it's definitely like that here, they're often at capacity. So even if you are trying to get help and see someone, you could be waiting like weeks and weeks before you can even get an initial like 
intake appointment. And it also makes me concerned, you know, like what if you are having like a mental health emergency? Where do students turn to in those kinds of situations? But I think that mental health in higher education, it's referred to as a crisis right now because the prevalence rates are so high at so many institutions. And I think that probably with COVID and all of the things that have happened with the global pandemic, it's probably gotten worse. So the stats that I gave were data collected in the very beginning of 2020. So right at the offset of COVID and when things started to shut down. And Here. I don't know. What would you say? That's like, like I can get increased mental health issues for juniors and seniors because mm-hmm. now it's so easy to compare. It's so easy to go online. It's so easy to see that friend who made it into NASA and got that internship or that other friend who was so physically attractive that now they're like a million follower influencer currently in Italy and Japan. Right. Both of which, both types of people I have in my personal life. I just I look at both of them and I'm like, wow, that's not me in Amazing. either direction. But other people would look at me and be like, wow, you're pursuing your PhD. That's such mm-hmm. a blessing. That's so awesome. I'm not doing yeah. that. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of social comparison going on. I mean, I think when you're first starting college, there's a lot of anxiety and stress that happens and probably some depression too, because your life has changed so much. So for a lot of these students, it's probably the first time that they've ever really been living away from home. And suddenly, you know, you're like totally responsible for yourself. There are a lot of like life changes that are happening. And you're also expected at that very young age to have a plan in place. I don't know when you're 18, 19 years old, and I know this is like an age old question, but do you really know what you want to do with the rest of your life? And there's so much pressure to to figure it out and figure it out quickly so that you can start working towards that degree to graduate. Yeah, I know. I was thinking, I know you referenced like Kentucky stats, but I'm looking at um, UA's page where they mm-hmm. basically have like a health and well-being website. And what they propose is the Alabama model. Um, Are you familiar with this, like the wheel of health that they use? No. Right. So they talk about the dimensions of the Alabama model and what they would say goes into like your mental health and well-being Mm -hmm. is your academic health, right? So they define as developing and enhancing successful skills and intellectual abilities to foster success, your career health, your financial health, psychological health, physical, social, and spiritual health. And I guess what they're arguing is all these dimensions from spiritual to physical to academic all play a part in your well-being. I don't see any stats that they released, although there might be some here. But I know that's kind of been like recent pushes for them to do outreach, which I guess a lot of universities do, where like they have like tables across the campus, try to give people like those little stress squeeze ball things. You know what I'm talking about? Right. The little rubber things, the rubber balls where you're just like squish, 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 but it's an elephant. I know at UCR, we used to have like puppy therapy. Are you familiar with it? Where it's like just they just bring a bunch of dogs. Yeah, we have that. We had that at my undergrad too. Yeah, it was always during finals or midterms week. And it's just like, go pet a dog for a little, for 20 minutes or so. You need a fluffy companion. Something else too, I think a lot of these mental health initiatives or whatever are focused on undergrads. And that makes sense. But I think the mental health crisis amongst graduate students is also pretty serious. I mean, I would argue that being in graduate school is like a risk factor for anxiety. I would say for many people, it's not a (laughs) guaranteed risk. But you're right. I guess by definition, that is what a risk factor is. It's not a guarantee, but definitely increases the odds. Yeah. When you talk about like a crisis of grads, because I always tend to think like equivalents of like law school students, 
mm-hmm. medical school students. Mm-hmm. And at least to my understanding, from what I call really, I think I had to write a research paper about it once, but kind of like the drug abuse that exists within the medical school realm. Yeah. If you have, you know, these future doctors, vast majority, I think like 95% drink alcohol, good chunk smokes marijuana, like a third. But like, I think there was one statistic and again, take any single statistical grain of salt, um, where it basically said that 64.3%, so about two thirds of medical students admitted to taking prescriptions that didn't belong to them. You know, it feels like using Adderall or Ritalin is almost like, well, yeah, you're in med school, so you should. Um, and I think that's kind of like a dangerous culture to cultivate where it's like, oh, this is the norm. Yeah. Um, or at least it might be a perceived norm, even though in actuality, it might not be the case. And that scares me because I'm not sure I would say grad school, at least psychology grad school is like, yeah, take study drugs. That's the norm. Um, and that might be because we're unique to psychology. So we or I'm not sure. Do you think in general, I don't have any experience with any other academic field besides psychology? So like, to me, it makes sense. Like if you have a bunch of clinical and experimental people who are like, oh yeah, drugs, here's their strengths, here's their weaknesses, or it doesn't actually increase performance, but increases maybe like short-term productivity, but Mm -hmm. not quality per se. Like that might lead to people just not romanticizing it as much. Well, all of that said, I thought that we could structure a good portion of today's episode on mental health by giving some advice to undergraduate teachers. And so I thought we could go through like a list of suggestions for how you can be there for your students in in the larger context of like this mental health crisis in, in higher ed. And so the first piece of advice that we came up with was to try and foster connection. And so there's some data out there that suggests that when undergraduate students at least feel connected to faculty and staff, then that helps their mental health. I can definitely see that being the case. I think this kind of idea that fostering connection is important is probably connected to this idea that, you know, they want to feel like they're in an in-group, that they are supported, that they belong where they are. And so one of my biggest pieces of advice that I want to give is to really pay attention to your students when you can and to reach out to them if you think that they might be struggling. And I know this is harder, especially when you teach larger lecture sections where you don't have a chance to really get to know students or like learn their habits or things like that. But if you do have the luxury of you know, getting to know some students or teaching a smaller class, like just paying attention can be really important. And I think you being the one to reach out instead of waiting for them to do it is also really helpful. So I think a lot of teachers will be like, if you're struggling, like feel free to like contact me, email me or whatever. But I think if you don't have anxiety, then you probably like don't know just how hard anxiety makes it sometimes to reach out and ask for help. So I think just because a student hears you say that, you know, you're available to help them or that there are resources on campus available for them. I don't think that means that they are actually going to reach out and take advantage of those. And so, for example, I taught a smaller class last semester, like a research methods lab class. And there was a student who was like always attending class, always doing really well on assignments. And then like mid-semester, she just like kind of stopped coming to class. She wasn't turning in her assignments. And when she was like, she wasn't doing a great job on them. I picked up on it. I like reached out and emailed her like, hey, like I noticed you haven't been coming to class. 
and that you haven't been turning assignments in, like no judgment. I just want to make sure that you are okay. It took a couple of days, but she emailed me back and was talking about like difficulties that she was going through, like related to her mental health issues. And we had like a good discussion and came up with a plan for her to, you know, submit late work and finish the semester strong. So yeah, just like doing things like paying attention and then like taking the time to, in a non-judgmental way, like reach out to students when you notice like deviations in in their typical behavior. I would concur with that. And I'm really glad you were able to share that story because I feel like when we say like make connection with your students, that can include accessibility, right? So make yourself accessible. And that doesn't necessarily mean like share your personal phone, but like it's more than just posting your email on your syllabus. So not quite sharing personal uh, phone numbers, but more than syllabus things. Of you're actively encouraging them to contact you through the appropriate channels, the professional channels. Um, and also being mindful of, I don't think it's just anxiety, although it can incorporate that, that leads the students not reaching out to you in the first place. Oftentimes, in my experience, when you know I'm just did my second round of student conferences, it's like, hey, just checking in. Some of them I see quite frequently, some of them I haven't heard from in a while. Um, and the ones that I haven't heard from in a while, some are going through, again, death in the family or death of a loved one. Others are going through personal diseases that, you know, immobilize them and put them in pain in bed and they can't physically attend class, but they try to online. And I, I, I bring all this up because when you ask like, oh, that's such a valid reason, you know, just let me know, I, I could try to do more. They often share stories of not you, but of other professors that they currently have or have previously had. And they said like, well, when I have reached out to professors, and again, since I'm teaching juniors, they can refer to their freshman or sophomore. You know, when I was a freshman or sophomore and they're like, hey, we have office hours. They went to office hours, but the professor wasn't in the room, right? So just like no showing to that. They went to office hours, but the professor was not at all helpful or welcoming, right? So basically the professor didn't actually expect anyone to show up during their office hours and got annoyed with you when you did, or through emails, a lot of professors don't reply. And I feel like as a college student, once you've had a year of this, two years of this, you just kind of get yes, used to like, well, why am I going to bother? Like this professor, Cassie seems nice and all, but I've learned over two years that even if she says she's doing this, she might not just respond. And I don't want to be a bother. And maybe the anxiety then fuels and emphasizes that component of, oh, I'm just going to be a baller, which is really sad. I just wanted to highlight that. It's like, it's not, it's an unwarranted anxiety for some people. It might be completely warranted. Um, and even then that's why I like where you're like, well, on your end, you should reach out to them just in case. And you should notice within reason, right? You can't notice everything. You can't pay attention to everybody, but do what you can. Like, if you know you had a rock star student and that rock star student's no longer showing, like mm -hmm. maybe instead of saying, you know, not my circus, not my monkeys, just be like, well, let me just check up and send an email just to say hi, just to say without judgment, like you said, mm -hmm. are things okay? Let me know. Here's what we've been doing in class. I think that can make all the world of a difference to a student to actually have someone who, who walks the talk, if you will. All right. So one piece of advice that we have is to try to foster connection. And the second piece of advice is to be an advocate for your students. And I think one way that you can easily be an advocate as a teacher of psychology is to just take advantage of the fact that you teach psychology, especially in like creating awareness about mental health and addressing, you know, the stigma that often surrounds mental health issues, especially for certain populations, right? So being, I think, very open about 
mental health issues, especially in academia, is important. And talking, I think, about how common it is, is probably really helpful for students to hear. But just like addressing these issues in a very non judgmental way can be very eye opening. And I think we have so many opportunities in psychology to do that, especially when you're teaching classes like Psych 101, where you typically do talk about psychological disorders. I think that students are inherently very interested in, in those sorts of things and hearing about them and from the perspectives that we we have to offer. So even if you're an experimental psychologist, I think you can still create space in your classroom to talk about you know mental health, the stigma, the stereotypes, and kind of dispel some of that. And to add on to the point of being non-judgmental, this idea of like being respectful Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, what I had in mind for this point was when it comes to DEI issues, I think it's really, I feel like most psych teachers will pretty, pretty easy to onboard. Like, all right, I won't be judgmental. I'll make this kind of like safe space. If I'm going to be talking about mental health, psych seems the perfect classroom to do it in. But I feel like almost the judgment comes from people who aren't seeking help, if that makes sense. It's almost like a reverse judgment. So like you create the space where it's like, there should be no shame in seeking help. And then you might encounter a student who's like, I still ain't feeling it. Um, There might be students who come from Latino background. So I'm going to use Latino culture as one of where getting medication is a sign of weakness. It's a sign that you basically have given up. You didn't try hard enough. You took the easy way out instead of trying to, quote, unquote, man your way through it. Um, and maybe you can say that's like a toxic masculinity thing in general, but I feel like that's extraordinarily prevalent in like Latino culture, at least. There's a certain amount of pride that comes or a certain amount of pride that almost feels lost when you take medication, uh, where that might not be as prevalent, like within white, more affluent communities, when you're poor and you're like, listen, you know, mental health, power through it, you know, just get through and you got this. Be resilient. I know it was hard for me to initially jump onto the medication train, even as a psych major, even going through my master's um, because of this kind of like instilled idea of me. It's just like mental, those who take mental health are kind of like, you know, they're kind of cuckoo. You you know, those are the extreme people. You don't want to be labeled as such. And that stigma still existed as a psych major up into my master's program until I finally realized like I've tried everything I can do and I realized I do need this to help me. I know Cass, when you said be non-judgmental if they do have a mental illness, I'd say just also be non-judgmental if you encounter some students who are skeptical or resistant to the idea that, you know, everyone should seek counseling or everyone should that. Because you might get some just like eyes like, oh yeah, whatever, not for me. And if they are coming from like a minority background or even if they're not, just be non-judgmental of that too, especially if this is the first time they're hearing about it. And they've been raised by parents who have made it stigmatized or they came from a background where it is stigmatized. I think part of being respectful too is like allowing students and not judging them if they reach out and like want to miss class or like need an extension on an assignment or something and they cite the reason as like mental health. You know, I feel like often professors will require if you want to take an exam at a later date, you have to provide like some kind of documentation for an excused absence or like if you have to miss class you have to provide an excused absence generally I don't believe in having students provide like really detailed personal explanations for those things or providing documentations for like having to miss stuff but if they do reach out to you and say I'm having a really really hard week and I need like two extra days or so to turn this homework assignment in I just don't see like the downfall in giving them two extra days to complete an assignment. That's also something that they've been trained to as well. Mm-hmm. They need an excuse. I've heard people who just in the family like, well, 
you know, take a picture of the coffin, you know, know. show me that you were there. And I've had students freak out on me, like an anxious freak out being like, oh God, my car broke down, but I forgot to get a receipt from my mechanic. I am so sorry. I can drive back the two hours where the mechanic was to ask for that receipt. I am so sorry. I'm on my way right now. And like an email response, I'm just like, no, I believe you look chill. Like it's fine. But like, they're so used to like, if they don't have a paper document, they're so used to not being trusted, which I know we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. And they're so used to in this context, having like a mental health day, not being a valid excuse. Yeah. Right. Like that's not valid for you to miss school. You should still come. If it was something else, provide paper documentation, but if it's mental health, you need to come. I feel it's like the implicit understanding in a lot of classrooms. Something that I do in my classes is every semester, I have two days where I cancel class. And I usually try to do that for days. Like I know I'm going to be at a conference or something like that. So it helps me anyway, but I label these days as mental health days. So every semester, every class has two mental health days. And I encourage them like on those days, like during the time that you would be in my class, don't do schoolwork, like go do something that's going to be like good for you and your mental health, right? Maybe it's like hanging out with a friend or like buying yourself an overpriced Starbucks coffee or taking a nap, use that 50 minutes or that hour and a half or whatever to do something that's good for you. And I think that in many ways is like trying to, what'd you say, like walk the talk, you know? So not just like spewing off all of these things that I say that I believe in, but like actually putting my money where my mouth is or like full of metaphors today, Um, but like actually doing these things that I, I say that I, I believe in. I think that actually ties in neatly with another piece of advice that we want to give. Mm -hmm. which is this idea of taking care of yourself. And when, you know, you originally proposed this kind of what I took away from this, I was like, I agree taking care of yourself, but in line with what you were talking about of walking the talk, putting your money where your mouth is, but be a role model. This kind of goes along with what we were saying. If we're saying that students should be willing to come to you and say like, Hey, I can't come to class because I'm having X, Y, Z bad day. I'm a firm believer. um, And maybe this is a little bit more controversial, but as an instructor, I've had to go to my students and say, I'm having an X, Y, Z, like I'm going through a mental health issue day. You know, today's class will be canceled, but here are some articles, here are some videos, here are some like alternative assignments, Mm -hmm. and we can pick this up on the uh, next day. So it's like a personal mental health day for me, because I know myself well, because I want them to realize this is a norm of like, when you're not feeling well, you should communicate that. So I don't know how controversial it is for a teacher to be like, because it's like, do you bring your personal life into the classroom? I'm only human. And like medication helps me to a certain extent. It helps everyone to a certain extent. But there is no magic pill, right? There's mm-hmm. no magic anti-depression that you always feel great all the time. Yeah. It helps you regulate your mood better. It helps you get out of those funks. But those funks still do happen. And if I'm feeling at 10%, I don't think I'm doing... I'm serving an injustice to my students by showing up to class and giving a subpar lecture Mm -hmm. that, you know, I just could have been better, could have been prepped for, could have been more polished, could have had better examples. Why put that to them and just where I can just end it like, hey, not so great of a day. So it's not as scheduled as yours, Cassie, or it's not like uh, here are conference day, but I'm relabeling it a mental health day. Mm -hmm. For me, it's a little bit more spontaneous than that, but it's always honest and transparent of like today is not my day or like this week's not my week. Yeah, Um, it doesn't happen too often. But when it does happen, I it just happened very, very recently where I just emailed them like, no, not on this day. I'm sorry, I can't. Um, And again, you don't have to divulge any too personal details, just like you wouldn't expect your students to divulge too many personal details your way. You can just say, 
mental health day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, a couple of years ago, my grandmother passed away and the semester that she passed, I was teaching psych 101 and a day before the funeral. And I was like going to travel to where it was in Virginia And I went to my psych 101 class and I was, I was so upset. Like I should have just canceled class, but I like, don't even make it through like three slides. And I'm like crying in front of a hundred. I remember you tell me this. Yeah. And I was just like, actually, like, I can't do this. You know, like I could try to like force you guys to like sit here and like watch me cry, but like. (laughs) <laughs> but that would somehow be worse well, but yeah yeah but like that would not be great for all of us and you know like we had an extremely short class that day but they emailed me like several students emailed me after like I've also like lost a grandparent and like I know what that sadness feels like and I'm so sorry and and again relating to something that we talk about very often just like humaning humanizing yourself for your students I think is so so important and makes like the learning environment so much better yeah and I think a part of that is as you're taking care of yourself and I know you and I have talked about this but like trying to know what resources are available to us, right? Mm -hmm. Both on campus, but also off campus. Again, just with my initial skepticism with like on campus things. Mm -hmm. Um, I was actually lucky for the psychiatrist I was assigned is from UA and it was actually a perfect fit, which I was going to be skeptical about. But if it wasn't, I was more than willing to seek some sort of like external source outside of campus in order to get that quality help. Where can you get help from? You can get help from your peers, if you can get help from your direct faculty advisor, but also your like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like periphery advisors, mm-hmm. tangential to it. So they may not be your direct ones, but they can still be helpful. Yeah, I, I do believe that. And obviously sometimes your advisor is the issue, your peers are the issue, but crafting that support system, either within your program, and I'm also trying to think of someone who would criticize this point, it's that sometimes you don't also want to heavily invest too much of your mental health resources within any academic program and make sure you have resources outside of the program. So not just off campus, but you have friends who are not in your grad program, that you're talking to people who are not in graduate school generally of just like having those things where it's like a break from yeah. the constant stress. Cause maybe you don't always want to be talking about dissertations and theses and pubs and revise and resubmit. Sometimes you just want to talk about video games and poetry. I think that you make a really good point, though, about knowing about resources both on campus and off campus and your suggestion to have friends or like part of your support system be made up of people who were not in graduate school. Like that is so important. I think like sometimes your perspective can become so myopic your your concerns and your worries are maybe like not that serious not that big of a deal and you're like beating yourself up about something that you've become fixated on and having an outside perspective is just so so useful in those kinds of situations but I think also part of like being prepared especially being prepared to help your students as an undergraduate instructor are things like familiarizing yourself with policies and roles at the school so I think it's important to create an open environment if you think you can handle that where like you feel like your students can come talk to you about things so like I for example have and I think you do too Jacob have like an open door policy built into our syllabi where Mm -hmm. we say like hey if there's ever anything that's like affecting 
your desire to stay here at the university. Like I'm somebody you can talk to and I might not know exactly what to do, but I can probably direct you to someone who can help you. So just being aware of where you can direct people, I think is very, very important. So is it something like the counseling center or specific prevention programs or, you know, resources that could be used to, you know, combat issues that are contributing to a particular student's anxiety or depression, right? So like maybe it's something like they're houseless or they're facing food insecurity, you know, do you know resources where where you can send them? Um, But also just generally being aware of what like laws and policies are in place and remembering that sometimes you have to report things. So you may have like an open door. You may want to be someone that your students can turn to, but some things you have to report. So for example, I know like here in our trainings, we're told like if someone you know, talks about a sexual assault, like we have to report that or, you know, like self-harm or, or things like that. Like we have to report those kinds of things. Um, so just generally being aware of those sorts of things. Again, I think we talked about this in one of the last episodes about like, just pay attention to like your FERPA training because it can come in handy, but these trainings can be like kind of dull to go through, but they do provide a lot of really helpful information. In my experience at past institutions, although it was kind of boring in the moment, I did feel it was incredibly helpful when it, we did have to practice it was we had to go through resource fairs and it's kind of odd because like resource fairs you think like oh it's undergrads and they're exploring that it was for us as staff to learn about these resources to then refer people to them Um, and not only that we had these types of role play activities if you will where you had someone got up in pairs or trios and you had someone read a script where they're about to divulge you a sexual assault experience or some child abuse. And one thing that they trained us to do, and I think it is good advice, is if you start recognizing or picking up those signals or you feel like you know where the conversation starts ahead, the fact that we are mandated reporters, you should probably let them know that before they finish or before they completely divulge. And I say that because you are obligated by law, right? And maybe no one wants to hear this HR talk, but you're obligated as a mandated reporter. You must report it if they do divulge that information to you. And some people can see that as an act of betrayal or a violation of trust of like, hey, I was telling you this and now you're reporting it to people. So just like letting them know beforehand, it's like, hey, in case you think what I think you're saying, I just want to let you know that I will, you know, I do have my hands tied and I will report this. Knowing this information, I'm going to have to report it. Are you still comfortable talking with me? And if they say no, which is the scariest thing, right? Where they suddenly kind of just like shut down like, oh, actually, I don't want to talk about it. Still, by knowing your alternative resources, you can refer them to anonymous, like the Title IX office, to the Women's Center, to more sources where they are not mandated reporters and they can speak in confidentiality and still speak about their experiences, right? Because there's two different types of resources, ones where you're mandated to report, but you can go to people who are not obligated to as well. And you should at least provide them that option that you know, like you're the confidential ones. So important in my experience, because that is a very uncomfortable conversation to have. And the last thing I would want to do is a student who trusted me, then feeling betrayed that I'm now quote unquote snitching them out or creating an issue or creating a problem when they didn't want it to be. Also something of no, You might think it's even obvious where they should go, but it might not be obvious to them. Mm -hmm. So for example, a recent issue in the classroom I have is I have someone who has a disability. And so we have a disabilities office. Is it what? ODS, Office Mm -hmm. of Disability Services. Right, Mm -hmm. right, right. And so they're kind of like the main hub to help students, right? 
by telling instructors like here are the accommodations you need to make what not yada 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 they try not to divulge any too much private information um and i had a student come up to me and she's like hey well thank you for doing xyz accommodation I've really been struggling with every other professor I'm taking, which to me is shocking that you have three other professors yeah. who ODS is pretty good at notifying us with several emails for students about what you have to do. And some professors, and I did not know this, just apparently ignore that outright, like they actively, like they don't just ignore it, but they actively go against it. And she's like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, go back to the ODS. <laughs> like, to me, that's okay. <laughs> but I'm like, no, you, she's like, well, they already told them what to do and they're not listening. No, the ODS needs to force them to comply because that's quite literally their job. Yeah. Like faculty, this isn't like a faculty pick and choose of what accommodation I want to do. Mm-hmm. This is help your students. Yeah. So even for that, I didn't want to be like, duh, but I was just like, no, please go back to them. Like that is their function because students might not realize the full functions of all their resources or they might have misconceptions of what the resources can and cannot do and like to me that struck is I was just like I can't imagine any professor ignoring it because that's also hammered it in our training like you yeah. just can't do that you can't just be like screw your screw yeah. your disability yeah <laughs> you can't just like pick and choose which accommodations you want to comply with that's what you know what I mean that's like how can the how does any professor ignore that actively yeah and she was like she's like I I didn't know the professors could do that. They can't. Yeah, they're not supposed to. But in thinking about accommodations, I think like one last like point that I want to make as far as advice goes is just like when it comes to having students with mental health problems, especially if you're an early teacher, I think it's worth sitting down and thinking about how you are going to like accommodate for that or address that. So like come up with a plan for what you will do in your class if a student reaches out to you and says like they're having some sort of like mental health problem or mental health crisis. Like, do you need to do something like refer them to the Office of Disability Services You know, like think about like, what's your policy going to be as far as like granting extensions on assignments or like makeup work or attendance coming up with a plan in advance is, is really, really helpful when you're teaching a class. I'll go even a step further. Uh huh. So I'll go even a step further. I will say that you should know where it is. These mental health resources, where the clinic center is physically located on campus. Mm. And I think that especially if you see someone in distress or who's like, you're not sure if they're actually going to go or not, instead of just giving them a pamphlet or telling them where the web link is, offer to walk them right there and then to the campus if they need it, right? You're not forcing yourself upon them, but just saying like, hey, I can tell that you're going through a lot right now. And I'm thinking of a student in actual major distress in the moment. Be willing to say, it's okay. Let's walk to the office together and we can go get you some help right now. Yeah. I think that makes a world of a difference. I think so too. I also think that just generally in classes to continue doing some of the stuff that has began with COVID helps a lot of students who have mental health issues or like other kinds of, you know, disabilities. So doing things like recording your lectures and providing those recordings to students. So, you know, they don't have to stress if like, you know, they're, they have to miss class because they're severely depressed that day, right? They can go watch the lecture that you have recorded. Um, But also like doing things like having flexible attendance policies and flexible due dates. We're offering things like hybrid class formats where like, you know, maybe you're in a funk and you 
don't want to go all the way to campus, but you still want to like make some kind of effort and attend class. So like having the option to do that over Zoom or like having the option to like attend office hours over Zoom and things like that. I think that in many ways, like COVID made education much more accessible and in many ways, like easier on certain groups of people. All right. Well, thank you for having this discussion with me, Jacob. Yeah. Okay. Well, we better stop. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, other than that, all resources that we talked about from the Alabama model to any of like the drug use prevalence rates Mm -hmm. um, in medical school to Cassie, I think you do have some sort of resource for the Kentucky. I do. Yeah. I have a a study to link. Mm -hmm. So for all of you extra mile corrupted folks or the corruptors, I forget Cass's name for y'all. It's there for you. Um, And I hope y'all enjoy this conversation. Yeah. We'll catch you in the next one. Take care of yourselves. Hello, hello again. We just wanted to thank you one more time for listening to Two Random Weirdos. If you want to listen to us ramble some more, we'll be posting episodes hopefully bi-weekly on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Fingers crossed. If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at CorruptYouthPod. Or feel free to email us at CorruptingTheYouthPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and helping us spread the corruption. Bye. Bye.